This morning, though, I want to focus on one of the evangelistic encounters that Christ had while he was here on earth. And it's going to be referenced tonight in the Bible study, but I want to take it a little bit deeper for us uh, this morning. So I, I want to give you a question and just kind of put it out there, and then we're going to kind of get back to that question a little later. I want you to think about this. In, 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 in regards of sharing your faith and talking to people about Christ, which do you find it easier to do, to witness to a person who knows they have sin in their lives or to witness to a person who has a self-righteous attitude that you know, is relying on their good deeds and, and that they're a good person? Which is it easier? Would you find it easier? Talk to a person who knows they have sins, struggles, problems in their lives or one who is self-righteous. Okay? Think about that. We're going to get back to that question in a moment here, but I'd like you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 10. Okay, this is one of the most familiar parables to Christians and to non-Christians alike. We're going to be talking this morning about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And everybody has heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. Whether you've ever been in the church door or not, you've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to look at this parable from two different angles that kind of go along with our study tonight and what we're challenging with ourselves within the morning uh, messages. I want to talk, look at it from the angle of the planting, watering, reaping process of reaching the lost. And then I also want to take a little bit of time at the end, not, not too much, but we're going to talk a little bit about the noticing our environment. Okay? So if you're in Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 30, and I'm going to invite you in reverence to God's word if you would stand together with me as we read the word of God. Verse 30 says, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and they went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. You may be seated. I got to tell you, it is easy to miss the main purpose of this parable and focus on some of the secondary lessons of this parable. Now, I, I am sure we have all heard the reference, you know, he's a good Samaritan or, or she's a good Samaritan. And usually when we use a term like that, you know, we, we're talking about someone who went out of their way for someone else who maybe was a totally stranger, total stranger, and did something to help them. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you experienced a good Samaritan. You know, you're broken down on the side of the road with a flat tire, and, you know, you, you know it's raining, whatever, and somebody stops, 
to help you change a tire. You say, well, that guy was such a good Samaritan. And this parable has been used by the whole world to advocate for social justice. That somehow, that this is what this parable is all about. Matter of fact, I, I came across this quote uh, by Jim Wallace. He's the author of the book God Politics. And I just took a paragraph out of this quote. It says this. It says the Good Samaritan is a problem. It seems to promote short-term aid without addressing the long-term justice. For example, what were the social conditions that led, to the, ma- led the man to abuse the wounded man? And was it a predictable outcome of a deeper societal illness? He says, was the Good Samaritan later inspired to engage the dilemma through advocacy? The Good Samaritan is open-ended, leaving an assortment of questions in relation to the preservation of social justice. What would happen if the Good Samaritan went down the road daily and began to critique the political and economic agendas of those in power in that area? Further, he says, we need to dig out the root causes of injustice that made the man steal. I, I, I am not reading from the Democratic platform here, folks, okay? <laughs> uh, this, this is, you know, the, the bent of some people on this. And, and, and the whole problem with this and, and how people take these things and what God is trying to teach about social justice and equality and all those sorts of things, the problem is the Good Samaritan didn't exist, This is a parable. There is no priest. There is no Levite. There is no Samaritan. There is no man that got robbed. These are fictional characters. God, Jesus, is telling a story here to try to make a point. Now, I believe in compassion. I believe in caring. You know, God definitely calls us to meet the needs of the poor. But those are not the purposes of this parable why it was written. Most of us would say, I think, that this parable is about helping people. Now, while that is certainly biblical, it's not the purpose here. This parable is about salvation. This parable is about evangelism. If you back up to verse 25, you will see why this parable was given, what the intent of this parable was. In other words, what question did it answer? It says in verse 25, and a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, (coughs) excuse me, he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? That's what he's asking Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. (coughs) Excuse me. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this parable is all given in an interaction between Jesus Christ and a self-righteous lawyer that asks the question about, how do, you, how do you get saved? How can I go to heaven? How can I know that I have eternal life? And it is clear that this is one of the many opportunities to witness personally to someone that Jesus had. And he gives us a demonstration of, of how 
he created God's space wherever he was, that the people around him was, were his area to minister for God the Father. And, and he's going to speak to our need of how we can as well engage the people around us. Now, we started earlier with a question. I asked you, which would you find easier, to talk to someone who knows they're a sinner, know that you know, they do things wrong, or someone who is self-righteous? My guess is most of you, I would think, said it's easier to talk to somebody who knows they're a sinner, who knows they're doing things wrong. But I also know that many of you, if you are open about your faith, you run into a lot of people who in varying degrees are self-righteous. They talk about their good deeds, their moral people, their good people. What do we do with them? It's so difficult sometimes to talk with them if they cannot recognize their sin. Well, here is an example of Christ talking to someone who is self-righteous. Just like people that we know that we bump into all the time. Matter of fact, it identifies him as a lawyer. Now, he's a lawyer, not in the civil sense. In other words, you wouldn't go to him, you know, to have a lawsuit against somebody or you go to him to defend you in a criminal case. He was a spiritual lawyer. They had them. These, these people dealt with the law of Moses. And they would dig into the law and, 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 and you know, say how it applied into society. And, and this is where that heavy yoke of burden was, was placed upon the people. And so it was his job. You know, to kind of say, this is what God's word says, and this is what you need to do. And, and so he's very involved in this. Um, you know, you, it's pretty obvious that he's very self-righteous here. Um, verse 25, I mean, the question that he asks, the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He asked him this, not because he cared about the answer, not, he wasn't asking out of need. He wasn't coming to the Savior, recognizing who Jesus was and saying, Lord, you know, how can I be saved? That wasn't him at all. He's asking this, it says, to test Jesus. Trying to trip him up. Trying to get him to say something that, you know, we can, we can twist and, and show that he is not the Son of God. And my guess is, again, if you are open about your faith, you've all had these conversations. You all have people in your life, someone you know who will bring something up spiritual just to challenge your faith, you know, just to challenge your beliefs, not because they genuinely care about the answer, but they're trying to test you. They're trying to, to, to trap you. I remember after I accepted Christ as my, my Lord and Savior when I was 15 years old, we were, we were part of a, a certain denomination that doesn't necessarily emphasize the need for salvation, just emphasizes the need to go to church, and that's enough. And when I gave my life to Christ, my life changed. Um, it, it did send ripples throughout my family. I remember that Christmas, I accepted Christ in the fall. That Christmas, evidently word had gotten out to my grandmother about this, and we were sitting at my grandmother's house for Christmas. I'm, what, you know, 15 years old, almost 16 years old. I'm, I'm sitting there reading in a chair, and she walks by me, and throws something on my lap, some article, and says, what about this? And she walks off. <laughs> and you know, I'm 15 years old. I'm like, I don't want to read anything more. <laughs> I don't know what about that, you know. But, I mean, this is the, she wasn't doing it to try to say, hey, I, I, I need to know an answer. But she wanted to test me. She wanted to, 
you know, it would have ended up in a disagreement and ended up in, in, in some sort of debate. And my guess is that's what we do a lot of times with people in our life. We're, we end up debating spiritual points. And, 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 and often they do very little to, to bring that person closer to Christ. And this is where Christ's example here can really help us understand the evangelistic process of when it is time to plant, when God wants to use us to water the seeds that have been planted in a person's life, and also discerning the times it is to reap. And we all want to reap. We all want to bring in the harvest. You know, we want to see family members. We want to see friends. We want to see a co-worker come to Christ. But the truth is evangelism is not just about hearing the gospel. But a person needs to be ready to hear the gospel. And part of evangelism is helping a person get to the place that they are ready to hear the gospel. And this lawyer asked that question very, very definitively. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to notice something. I want you to notice something in Christ's answer to him. Christ didn't give him the answer. Christ didn't give him the answer. He didn't suddenly say, you know, you know I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. He didn't say, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who... You know, eats of me shall never hunger again. You know, I'm the, a spring of living water. He didn't say any of those things. Christ knew this man's heart. I mean, he is God. He knows this man's heart. He knows his self-righteousness. And the man did not see his need to be forgiven. And I imagine from the outside, this man was well-respected in his community he was religious. My guess is he was a very moral man. But we're going to put this quote up here for you. Christ knew that there is no good news until man accepts the bad news. And sometimes in our evangelism, part of what God is asking us to do is help a person understand the bad news, is that we are all sinners. And we all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And just to understand that truth of where we truly stand. And it's hard when we're talking to a self-righteous person, a good person. You know, there's all varying degrees of this. Obviously, this, this man was, had, had a lot of arrogance involved in his self-righteousness. But we all we know people. I have a very good friend that for over, over 20 years, I met him very early on when we moved over here and, and began, you know, pastoring in this area. And for 20 years, I probably over that 20 years had opportunity to tell him about maybe five, six times, invite him to church, talk to him about Christ, something along the lines. And he is a really, really good person. And he says, I think I got this covered. I'm okay. You know, appreciate it, but I'm okay. What do you, what do, you, what do, you do with a person, you know, in your life that, that is just like that? See, this is a great lesson for us of what Christ did. You know, did Christ fail because he didn't tell this lawyer that he was the way and the truth and the life? Or did he succeed because he addressed one of the barriers that were keeping the man from ever seeing his need, from ever seeing he needs to be saved? I mean, here Jesus is, he is working the soil. 
he leaves this man with something to think about. He knew, and again, he is the son of God. He knows the heart. He, you know, he's different than you and I, but, it, you know, we can take some lessons here. He knew when was far enough to go and then leave it and let the man go away and think about that. And he really gave this man uh, something to think about. Um, there's another parable that Christ told. Um, we won't read it. I'll just reference it. It's very familiar. It's the parable of the sower about the man goes out to sow his seed. And, you know, in those days, they didn't have planters very specific. They just cast the seed. talks about some falling on hard soil, some, you know, on rocky soil, some falls in weedy areas, and, and some falls in good soil, and it, it produces a crop. Um, that soil, we know from that parable, the soil represents people's lives. Some people are hard. Some people are, you know, have rocky. Some people have a lot of the world's cares and concerns, like a lot of weeds in their life that choke out any, any hope of the gospel. Well, I, I want to tell you something. The soil of a person's life can change. The soil of a person's life can change. My guess is that's probably the testimony in some of your guys' lives. You would probably say there was a time in your life that you were hard, that you were, had hard soil, or you would possibly say you, you were very, you know, worldly, very humanistic, had a lot of weeds in your life, and that the cares and concerns of the world, you know, choked out any need for God. But you've come to Christ. Something happened. You know what happened? Your soil changed. I don't know how. I don't know what your story is. But somehow, something God worked in the heart, worked through people, other believers, and worked that soil to the place where that soil would then be ready to receive your seed. You know, we often forget that. We often bypass that important step of of the soil being ready. I mean, does it really help to throw more seed on hard soil? I mean, is it, it isn't going to make that soil soft and receive the seed. I'll just pile on more, more seeds. But it needs to be tilled. It needs to be turned over. It needs to be worked. And the beauty of it is God may be using you in that moment to to, to help till it. And God is using circumstances, even when you're not around other people's lives, just life circumstances to, to till hard soil. You know, throwing more seed, you know, on a life that is consumed by the world isn't going to change the problems that, you know, he cares more about the world than he cares about anything else. That's not going to change it. You know, that person, he needs to come to the place to see that these things of the world are emptiness. They're vanity. They're going to... You can't take them to eternity. They're temporal. Until that soil in their life changes, until they know, you know, the bad news, they're not ready for the good news. Now, I'm not saying we don't share the good news, but I'm just saying we forget that process of, of working the soil in people's lives. Part of his evangelism is addressing the hurdles as well as the, the walls, the preconceived conceptions, maybe the, the bad experiences they might have had in their past. You know, whether it be a coworker or a friend, you know, help, help them, you know, prepare that soil. And this is exactly what Jesus did in this man's life. Again, remember, Jesus knew this man's heart. You know, it may take you, if you have a relationship and, you know, with a coworker or someone in your neighborhood or someone in your family, it may take you a number of contacts and, and discussions to have with that person to, to be able to understand what the content of their heart is, 
whether they're hard soil or rocky soil or weedy soil, whatever it might be, and, and to be able to, to work that. You know, again, Jesus is the son of God. He knows man's hearts. But you and I can do it, and God uses us to do it. And that's, that's in part what we are learning and, and emphasizing in this activating God's face Bible study. You know, a lot of the stuff isn't new, and I think we know a lot of this stuff, but to, to have it all put together and to be encouraged and have some of the accountability and of a Bible study, it's going to ha- try to help us to, to, to maybe apply uh, many of these things. Um, let's go back. I want to I look real quickly here um, at the answer that Jesus gives them, gives this man. <coughs> he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? <coughs> and he said to him, What is written in the law? Okay, he's a lawyer, you know, goes right to him. I mean, you are, you know, I mean, and I don't think, think Jesus is doing the coming. You're a lawyer, you tell me, you know, he's not doing it like that. But he's going, he's starting where this man is, even to where one of his strengths is, the law. And so he goes to the man's strength, says, what does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. So, so the barrier in this lawyer's life is his self-justification. Um, again, obviously, there's a level of arrogance in his life. But, but you and I, we run into non-believers in all sorts of varying degrees of this. Um, really, really nice people. Good, good people. They're kind. They're helpful. They're moral. Um, we run into people who are even religious. You run into people who are even more attached to their church than you might be to your church. But you, as you talk to them, you see that, you know, they, they have religion and not a relationship. They have that need for repentance and forgiveness and to be saved. But the problem is their perceived goodness keeps them from seeing that need. And so verse 29, when, when Jesus said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will leave, uh, you will live. Um, you know, basically, and, and this parable, if you look at it, and we're not going to go too far down this rabbit trail, but the parable of the Good Samaritan is impossible to live. You tear it down what this Samaritan did. You tear it down what he did. Yeah, I can do it to a certain level, to a good level. But, but basically, Christ is setting an, an insurmountable standard. And we're going to look at that real briefly in just a second. But it says in verse 29, after, after he says, do this and you will live, it says, but wishing to justify himself, <clears throat> excuse me, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Again, I, I can't believe the, the hubris of this man. I mean, it's, it, it's just, it's thick. Here he is. He is challenging the son of God to examine his life to see what a good person he was. You know, to, to see what that standard of neighbor, you know, was that, you know, he has been reaching that standard. Can you even imagine doing this? I mean, before Jesus, you know, to even want to test him or try him, but to stand up and say, well, tell me who's righteous or, you know. I mean, no way I would want to do that. And so to this answer of who is his neighbor, again, remember Jesus is the bigger question of how he gets to eternal life. He's working his soil He's working his problem here. This is what the answer of the Good Samaritan is. It is to address that problem. So it says there in verse 30, again, I'll read it for you again. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers, and they stripped him, and they beat him, 
and they went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and he came to him and bandaged him up, bandaged up his wounds, poured oil on, wine on them. He put him on his own beast. He brought him to inn, personally took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. That would have been two days' wages. Think about two days of your wage, 40% of your paycheck. He took it out, and he gave it to the innkeeper and said, you know, I got to go, but, you know, I'm gonna, I want to take care of this man's needs that he has here. I want to take care of any debt that he incurs. You know, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. He left himself wide open, left himself open to be ripped off by the innkeeper, to be used and abused by this, this man who's been beaten and he's left there. And the man could have just said, hey, this is a pretty cushy deal. I'm just going to stay here. Somebody else is paying. He left himself wide open for any of these things. You know, he, th- this is a, an insurmountable, what he says, who is our neighbor, for us to have this for everybody around us. We can't live like this. Now, it does not say that we don't apply this, you know, that, that we don't try to do this, but we are going to fall short. We're going to fall short in our hearts and our attitude. We haven't even talked about the Samaritan was, was actually to the Jews. They were despised. So this man is overcoming hatred, you know, basically towards his enemies, you know, doing these things. He's overcoming so many things. He's saying that, that's what it means, you know, to be a neighbor. That's what, what Christ is saying. So Christ tells him this parable. And this parable is to unseed his self-righteousness. The lawyer would have said, I've never murdered anybody. But if you remember in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon of the Mount, Christ says, if you even curse a person in your heart, you've committed murder. You know, there's man's standard of righteousness, of everything that you can see, and then there's God's standards of righteousness that goes to the heart. This lawyer would have said, I, I, have nev- I have been faithful to my wife. I have never cheated on my wife. I have not committed adultery. God says, you look on a woman with lust in your heart, and you've committed adultery. There's, there's man's standard, but God, God's standard is that standard that we're to be held to. And again, he's giving us these things to, to show us our need. I need the Savior. I don't need to be better I need Christ. I, I, I need forgiveness. And then interesting, in the Sermon on the Mount, <coughs> excuse me, he comes to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, and he's almost encapsulizing this parable, isn't he? He says, you have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is to be perfect. And again, the whole point of those, if you, if you flesh out the Sermon on the Mount, is to show us, our need. We can't. And that's what Jesus is trying to do to this lawyer. That's the soil that needs to be worked in his heart. His self-righteousness. 
And again, our goal is not to put a person down to get them to see that they're sinners, but they must see their need. That's a prerequisite to be saved. You cannot be saved. A person cannot be saved unless they deal with their sin. Salvation is an issue of sin. We are sinners. We need salvation, something outside of ourselves, something that Jesus did on the cross for our sins. <coughs> All right, uh, Christ's interaction with this lawyer, uh, again, it's no, inter- no different than the interaction that we have every day with people. Um, Jesus may have been able to get to the heart of the issue quicker than you and I can, but you and I still need to get to the heart of the person's life. And again, that's what activating God's space is about. It talks about five areas of noticing, asking questions, listening, praying, and then wandering, thinking about how, you know, you can approach that person and from where they're standing, you know, introduce the gospel. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on noticing, you know, noticing aspect in reaching people for Christ. This parable of the Good Samaritan uh, can teach us a lot of things about noticing as well. Again, that's not the primary purpose of it, but, but again, there's a lot of secondary purposes here. Um, so verse 30 and through 33, uh, we read that earlier about the parable, you know, of, about the, the priest, the Levi, and the Samaritan. Um, first thing I need to clarify for you, and we're going to take a, just a few minutes talking about noticing here. Um, I, I shouldn't just say noticing, because we all notice. I want to talk to you about biblical noticing. Seeing people as Christ sees them. Seeing people as God sees them. Because the truth is, the priest saw this man beaten on the side of the road. The Levites saw this man beaten on the side of the road. We know they saw him because it says they crossed to the other side to avoid the man. So they had to have seen him. So they noticed him. Um, you know, they, they, they saw the same thing that the Samaritans saw. They saw the same blood. They saw the same bruises. They heard the man groaning. But verse 33 says, but the Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, here's biblical noticing. He felt compassion. He saw things. He noticed something differently. He had compassion. He had sympathy. He had concern. You know, obviously there are all sorts of levels of noticing. As a Christian, we're called to notice, and noticing moves us to compassion. It's supposed to move us to action. James chapter 2, verse 18 and 20. It says, but someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? We can talk all we want about God, a God of love, a God who cares. But when we're dealing with other people and we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, our faith works. Our faith moves us to compassion. Biblical noticing, you know, calls us to action. Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, um, I, I remember back in college, uh, there was another Christian university that staged a preaching contest uh, amongst the seniors, the graduating seniors of the men who wanted to go into the pastorate. Each one of them, again, 
um, this was the test of them. Each one of them was asked to to preach about a 10, 15-minute message on the Good Samaritan. That's the text that they were given. And, you know, I'm not sure how long they prepared for it, but they were all taken, the whole class, they were taken to wait into a room, and then somebody would come in to them and say, you know, Tim, it's your turn, and would take them out of the room. And they had to go across the lawn, across the sidewalk to another building to preach. And as they took the people out, suddenly whoever came and got them would suddenly say, oh my goodness, look what time it is. You've only got two minutes before you're supposed to be on. And they would leave them. And, and the, you know, the student would you know, rush across. Well, unbeknownst to them, they had somebody planted on the sidewalk right in their path who was laying there with a, a, pretending to have a broken leg, like they had fallen. Only one out of the five students stopped to help. Can you imagine that? I mean, you have, you've just poured yourself into the word of God. You know, and you're about to, to go and preach and tell other people about, you know, the Good Samaritan and about, you know, seeing things and people and reaching out and meeting those needs. And only one in five, when it was time for their, them to have compassion, they all noticed, but only one in five had compassion. Now, we think, what, what, how horrible they, you know, walk by, you didn't even really notice it biblically, you know, you know, we, we would never do that. But I, I got a question for you here. Without saying it, and I, I just want to show a hands here. I don't want you to say what it is. There is something that has been changed in this service three times over the last hour. How many of you know what it is? Not a single one of you. I've changed my tie three times. I was here starting visiting with you. You know, open with one tie. I came out and did announcements. I had a totally different tie on. And then I went out after the announcements during the singing. I put another tie on. I know I hid it from you, you know, right in front of the face. But it's easy to notice. And, and how many things are we all around us that are happening? And, and we're focused on other things. You know, we're focusing on worshiping. We're focusing on God. Maybe you're focused on the message. And, and we're missing things. You know, miss, missing opportunities. Noticing in people's lives help us to understand them. Understand who they are. Understand where they're coming from. It connects us to them. When I notice them, their lives. You, you, you all, you, you've probably gone through the lines. Maybe it's at the end of a sermon or something. And, you know, you've been at a church or a conference. And you, you go to shake the guy's hand who spoke. And you've all felt that they're shaking your hand as they're pushing you on. What does that make you feel like? Yeah. I feel real good about this. You know, you wanted to maybe say something or, you know, thank them, but, you know, they're kind of moving you on. You're just you're kind of cattle moving on. And, and sometimes, you know, we have our God space, and that's how we're dealing with people around us. Not, I'm not saying we're being malicious or being purposeful, but we're just not biblically noticing people. Noticing helps us understand a person. It helps me really connect with them and, and really care about them, you know, before I even come to the place of sharing the gospel with them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Speaking of Jesus there, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without shepherds. I think that's an interesting, sweeping statement that Jesus makes. He looked at a crowd, and he looked at that crowd. Again, he's God. He's the Son of God, and 
he feels this great compassion for them. They're sheep without shepherds. And my guess is the vast majority of the people, they wouldn't have described themselves like that. You know, they had their lives, they had their businesses, their jobs, their occupation, their focuses, all of that. But Jesus saw they were rudderless, these people. And, and, and he could connect with them. He saw a crowd. He could see their hidden hearts. You and I, we need to take the time. We need to focus to get to the same place that Jesus could in just a moment of looking at a crowd. We need to, to get to understand the crowd around us, whether it's the, you know, the place we pump gas, where we buy groceries, the same people we sit next to on the bench when we're watching our kids' sports, whatever it might be. We need to begin to notice, biblically noticing them, not like, oh, huh, you're having troubles. Okay, you know, on we go off to something else. Noticing helps us connect with people. I want to end with this. In verse 36, Jesus asked the lawyer this. He says, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hand? I want to leave you with a question. Which of those three do you think this beaten man would have been open to hearing about Jesus Christ from? And we have a choice of who we're going to be in this story, of placing ourselves in there. You know, it takes time. It took the Samaritan, again, he's not a real person, but for this, you know, dialogue to have happened, for this interaction to happen, it would have taken time for him. It would have taken an investment. It would have taken caring, first and foremost. And how many divine appointments that we have in our lives have, have we noticed without noticing? You know, that, that, that hurting mother or, you know, that, 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 that father or that husband that, you know, is struggling at work and we just deal with them based on work and we've not really noticed them this is what activating God's space is all about and this is what we're going to be talking about again I invite you to come to it tonight at the very least you all received that book um, that we're going deeper into I encourage you to read it again it is you know for myself it was just I want to say inspiring but it was just yes yes this is what I want and, uh, you know, the more and more we talk about it, it, we want it to become habitual to us, that this becomes second nature, not something that I'm trying to change what I normally do by noticing people. All righty. Um, so at 6 o'clock tonight, we would love to have you there. I am going to invite our worship team to come forward. We're gonna, I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, or at least have a word of prayer for us as they come forward. Uh, let's stand together with me as we pray. Father God, I thank you for the truth of this word. God, it is challenging to me. It's convicting. But God, you didn't, you didn't share this, Father, to, to shame me. You shared this, Lord, in a way that, that, that gives us hope. Maybe of, of people that we have been burdened for. And, you know, we seem to just be hitting walls with them. Thank you, Father, for showing us how to, how to interact with people like that, to open up their hearts to take the time to bring them to you. And Lord, I pray that we might take this to heart, Lord, more than something we walk away from here with knowledge, but Lord, that we'd walk away from here with the wisdom to apply it. Thank you, Lord, in thy son's name we pray.